Good morning, everyone. Well, let's, let's turn to 1 Timothy. We're in chapter 6, and we'll begin reading with verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Well, the last time we looked at this charge that Paul gave to Timothy to keep the commandment without stain or reproach. Timothy had been given a number of spiritual gifts for the care of the early church, so Paul is charging him to fulfill his ministry. And I think really the unique thing about this charge that Paul makes is that it's far more than just his exhortation to Timothy, the way he words it. He says that this commission is given to Timothy in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. See how he says it? I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach. To give an earthly and very inferior illustration of this, suppose you were a cadet at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Upon completing your training, you received a commission as a second lieutenant. At the commissioning ceremony, not only were your instructors and high-ranking officers there, but the commander-in-chief of the entire armed forces was there. To have the President of the United States States present at the ceremony would surely add some solemnity and significance to your commission. Well, that's a poor illustration. How much more for Timothy, who had been commissioned and entrusted to fight the good fight of faith by the Apostle Paul in the presence of the Commander-in-Chief, the Lord of Hosts. As I said last time, I don't think Paul was trying to frighten Timothy by using these strong words. Rather, it was to encourage him to be true to the great calling, realizing that God will strengthen him as he seeks to serve Christ in this great ministry that he's been given. I'm sure there were times for Timothy, even here at Ephesus, times for Timothy like there are for all of us when it seems like the battle is going poorly. We seem sometimes outnumbered, outmaneuvered, outgunned, and outsmarted. 
But if we will truly keep the commandment without stain or reproach, God will use us for his glory. We must simply keep to our commission until God calls us home or Christ comes again. We're told in due time we shall reap if we faint not. For everything there is a season. There's a time for war and a time for peace. We're now part of the church militant, the church at war. We must fight the good fight of faith. When Christ comes again, we'll be part of the church triumphant, the church at rest. Paul tells us here that whatever time that might be, when Christ comes again, it's going to be the proper time. You see that in verse 15. He will bring this about at the proper time, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's going to be the proper time. His time is always the right time. We just want to make sure that by the grace of God through faith, we receive an honorable discharge from our service here on earth. Well, Paul, as he thinks about the great work of building the church and how Christ will come again to receive Christians to himself, he goes into a, he launches into a doxology, a praise of God. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, says this is one of the finest doxologies in Scripture. We're looking here at the latter part of verse 15. Let me just read it again. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So this is a a praise, a doxology that Paul goes into. Paul often did this type of thing in his writings. Uh, he would think on some great theme of concerning God and redemption, and he would pen a what seemed to be a spontaneous outburst of praise. Uh, if you remember, we he has done this once already in First Timothy, back in chapter one, verse seventeen. After he's talking about the, the wonder of his conversion, Paul's conversion, think about what God did for him. He says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So another doxology. In this section, the one we're looking at this morning, we see him again exalting the majestic attributes of God. He uses seven words or phrases to describe the greatness of God in this doxology. So what I want to do is for us to just briefly examine these, though we must acknowledge from the outset that we're trying to examine things far beyond our comprehension. Just these seven words or phrases here are are loaded with tremendous insight and meaning and, and uh, thoughts that we could meditate on forever. Now let me just say something to the children here. As I think about this section we're looking at, I realize 
and I hope that I can just get this across, that God is so much greater than I can possibly tell you. If I was the greatest speaker on earth and I came to these verses here, I still couldn't do justice to them. There's a song that we sing sometimes that says, speaking of God, He is beautiful beyond description, too marvelous for words. Well, that's the way God is. We, we can talk about Him, but we do so poorly. He is an infinite, perfect, personal being which nothing greater can be conceived of. You can't think, you can't possibly think how great God is. So children, I just want, you know, if you don't remember anything about what I say, just remember whatever I said, God's a lot greater than that. He's greater than our highest thoughts about him. In trying to present the majesty of God, the God of infinite greatness, we're trying to express the inexpressible. But what we can do is take what God has revealed in the scripture and meditate on these truths. That's what we want to do here just briefly this morning. I just want to present some things that maybe... uh, as we think about them and meditate on them, we'll get a, a fresh glimpse or a, a new glimpse of the greatness of God. So, these are lofty concepts we're dealing with here. And if we, if we don't try to meditate on these things, we will have a very limited and low and deficient view of our great God and Savior. We need to do this. So may God help us as we look at these truths in this tremendous doxology. First, Paul calls God the blessed and only sovereign. The blessed and only sovereign. There are many earthly sovereigns those that rule areas of this world. But their their sovereignty is a limited sovereignty, which means that they're not really sovereign at all. They are sovereign over a little place for a little time. But God is truly the only sovereign, the one over all forever. He's the only one who absolutely does as he pleases in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. He does as he pleases everywhere. And when it says here the inhabitants of the earth, that includes you and I. Sometimes it seems like it's easier to believe that he's in charge of the rise and fall of empires than it is to believe that he's in charge of the things that go wrong in our lives. But he is sovereign in the big things and in the small things. And we need to remember, as one writer said, the circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. They may be the work of evil, but that evil is held firmly within the mighty hand of our sovereign God. 
How our loving God controls evil is a great mystery, but he is always the only sovereign. And since he's totally omnipotent, absolute and infinite blessedness is his. He is the blessed and only sovereign. This could be easily misunderstood as speaking of God being blessed by others, but I don't think that's the main thought here. Paul is emphasizing that God is blessed in himself. He has in himself the source of highest joy and perfect being. He's blessed in himself. Now let me just try to expand on that by using a quote from A.W. Pink. He says, His blessedness, God's blessedness, is totally contained in his own person. He and he alone has self-contained happiness. He is the source of his own bliss. No creature can have this. We are dependent. He is independent. So the idea is not that he is the only one who should receive blessing, but that he is the only one who is blessed in himself. He's the blessed and only sovereign. A.W. Tozer presents this truth in a, in a little different way. He says, God has a voluntary relation to everything he has made, but he has no necessary relation to anything outside of himself. His interest in his creatures arises from his sovereign good pleasure, not from any need those creatures can supply, nor from any completeness they can bring to him who is complete in himself. Yeah. These, are, these are deep, lofty concepts, and it's worth meditating upon, upon these things. He's the blessed and only sovereign. Next, Paul tells us that God is the King of kings and Lord of lords, which also has to do with his sovereignty. We'll take these two designations together. Literally, what Paul says here, according to the commentaries, is that God is the King of those kinging and the Lord of those lording. In other words, you and I may have to answer to some earthly king or lord, one who is kinging or lording in certain aspects of our life. But those kings and lords will have to answer to God. He's the one who is really in charge. He's the one who reduces rulers to nothing and makes the judges of the earth meaningless. There have been throughout history many rulers and lords who consider themselves mighty in their day. But there's only one king and lord who is almighty. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. And we know in the book of Revelation, we hear this. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. 
So there's been many emperors and potentates who considered themselves mighty, but actually they were mighty small <laughs> compared to the Almighty. Now most people don't see the reality, the reality of this great truth. They don't see God's providential directing of the affairs of this life. They don't see that the nations are in his hand and he appoints their boundaries and controls their destiny. They don't see that God employs nations and rulers to accomplish his purposes, exalting them to greatness or bringing them to nothingness according to his good pleasure. Most people don't realize that God brings peace and fruitful seasons or sends the desolations of war, famine, and drought. All such things are done after the counsel of his will and are designed for wise and good ends, which many, many times we cannot comprehend. Many of his ways are past finding out. Well, we'll go on to verse 16. There Paul tells us that God alone possesses immortality. He alone possesses deathlessness. Mortality is death. God alone possesses immortality. Deathlessness. I guess that's a word. He never began to exist. He shall never cease to exist. But what this is talking about is much more than endless existence. It has to do with having life in himself. He possesses immortality. He has life in himself. No creature has life in itself. God alone has life in himself. The Christian receives eternal life by being in Christ. We receive it, but only God possesses immortality. Jesus said it this way in John 5:25 Truly truly I say to you an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the son of god and those who hear shall live for just as the father has life in himself even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself from and for all eternity god gave to the son to have life in himself another one of those phrases that you could meditate on uh, profitably for a long time that the son has life in himself he is a never failing fountain of living water we must drink from if we're going to have life he is the everlasting god who lives forever Life, both here on earth and in eternity, is a gift from him. In him we live and move and have our being. Paul already wrote this to Timothy back in verse 13. Remember, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. So he'd already mentioned that. But this verse brings out the eternal aspect which comes as a gift from God. But more essentially, it is a gift of God. It's not just the gift from God. It's the gift of God. 
he alone possesses immortality. If we're going to have life, eternal life, it's in him. Next, Paul says that God dwells in unapproachable light, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Psalm 104 says of God, Thou art clothed with splendor and majesty, covering thyself with light as with a cloak. I think what we're talking about here is just the reality that there's so much brightness and radiance and glory and holiness about him that no one can come near to him. Unapproachable light. It might be compared in a small way to the light of the sun. We need it. We can't live without it. But we can't look at it in its radiance because it's too brilliant. Now, if we can't even look at this small part of God's creation, how can we approach the Creator Himself? In His light, we see light, but God's very greatness and majesty keep us at a distance because He is simply too glorious. Consider the example of Moses when he asked to see God's glory. God told him no man could see him and live, but that he would put him in the cleft of a rock and cover him until God's glory passed by. That rock, of course, is symbolic of Christ. That's the only way we can get near to God. He gives us refuge, God gives us refuge in his Son so that we can draw near to him as our Father. As A.W. Tozer put it, we must take refuge in we must take refuge from God in God. People don't see their need for Christ because they've never seen the true character of God or they've seen so little of it. R.C. Sproul said if you had one glimpse of the character of God, the character of God and an equal glimpse of your own character The greatest need you would feel burning in your soul is your need for a Savior. Mm -hmm. Just to see a little of who God is and a little of who you are, really, the greatest need you'd you'd sense would be the need of a Savior. His glory and incomparable greatness produce such a radiance that he is unapproachable by fallen, finite creatures. From this amazing truth concerning God's radiance, Paul goes on to say that no man has seen or can see God. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. The Apostle John tells us in the first chapter of his gospel that no man has seen God at any time. This is partly because God is a spirit and does not have a material body. No one can see God because he's invisible. Paul already told us that back in that first doxology, remember? He said, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor 
and glory. In his essential being, God has none of the properties belonging to matter and cannot be discerned using our physical senses. Nevertheless, he does sometimes show himself through visible created things like the pillar of fire or the burning bush or the smoke and fire on Mount Sinai. That's why there seems to be some contradictions between various passages in the, in the scriptures. What do I mean? Well, for instance, we're told in Exodus chapter 33 that the, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Yet a little later in the same chapter, God tells Moses, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Then, a little bit later, God does reveal or manifest himself to Moses. All this shows us that there is a sense in which God cannot be seen at all, yet there's also some, sometimes the, some outward form or manifestation of God that can be seen. There was for Moses there. It says God descended in a cloud and somehow... Moses saw something of his glory pass by. So there are many manifestations like that in the Old Testament, manifestations of God. But these are all overshadowed in the coming of Christ. Jesus was the image of the invisible God, the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature. When he was here in, on earth, he was a visible, real human being. But he was the exact representation of God's nature. Somehow the, the radiance of God, and it does say he's the radiance of God's glory, somehow that radiance was restrained as he walked the earth. The songwriter says in the Christmas song, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. And I think we can say it this way. In coming to earth, the Son of God veiled his deity, but he did not void it. His moral character was such that he could say, He who has seen me, has seen the Father. So I think Paul is actually wanting us to realize two main things from this phrase about God dwelling in unapproachable light that no man has seen or can see. First, God the Father in his essential spiritual nature is invisible. There's nothing material in his makeup. Consequently, he has never been seen nor will be seen by mortal eyes. But more than that, since he dwells in unapproachable light, which, no, which has to do with his absolute moral purity and glorious holiness, there is a blinding radiance, a radiance of glory about him that makes it impossible for us to see him as he is, at least in this life. As the songwriter said, God lives in light inaccessible, now hid from our eyes. 
light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. When something of that light, the light of his glory appears, humans know instinctively to keep their distance. So I want to quote a couple verses here from a, a poem. Eternal light, eternal light, how pure the soul must be. When placed within thy searching sight, it shrinks not, but with calm delight can live and look on thee. The spirits that surround thy throne may bear this burning bliss, but surely that is theirs alone, who undefiled have never known a fallen world like this. He's talking about the unfallen um, angels there. They, they might surround the throne and bear the burning bliss, but surely that is theirs alone, who undefiled have never known a fallen world like this. Well, I'll quote more of that poem here in just a moment. In the age to come, we're told that in some sense we will be able to see him face to face. It could be that these references refer to beholding the Son of God in his glory, or it's possible that in some way unknown to us now, in our resurrected and glorified bodies, we will be able to see what is now invisible to us. Perhaps we will have a real vision of God, even if it's a type of seeing that we're not familiar with here on earth. That's just uh, speculation. But it does. the Bible does say, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But I, I believe that much of the wonder of the new heavens and new earth are entirely beyond our comprehension at this point. So it's best not to speculate too much. Nevertheless, I think we can say what the poet said, How beautiful, how beautiful the sight of thee must be, thine endless wisdom, boundless power, and awful purity. Paul ends off this doxology by acknowledging that God is the one, the only one, worthy of honor and reverence and adoration. To him be honor and eternal dominion. The only one that's worthy of those things. He's the one who has eternal dominion and is worthy of eternal dominion. He has eternal power and strength over all else. And it's right that he does. Basically, what Paul's saying here is, praise God, he's God. Just praise him, because he's God. Matthew Henry says, Be not afraid of saying too much in praises of God. All the danger is in saying too little. Our God is so great and our praises are so small compared to who he is. Because we're not nourishing our souls on high and holy thoughts of God like the the ones here in this doxology, our praises and worship are often deficient. If our hearts and minds were filled with great thoughts of God like, like Paul had, praise and worship would surely be the spontaneous outflow, just like this flowed out of Paul as he was thinking on who God is and what he's done. This doxology comes forth. 
Paul's, Paul's desire was that all would join him in proclaiming the excellencies of God. He is the one in whose presence Paul gave this charge to Timothy. He's the one in whose presence we live and move and have our being. He's the one who sent his son to die for sinful people like you and I. He's the one who will, at the proper time, send his son again into the world to terminate the evil and diadem the right. Paul closes this doxology with the little word, Amen, which basically means this is true. This is so. If we want to line up with what is right and real, we need to ascribe to God all honor and eternal dominion and add our amen to Paul's. Just say, this is so. This is the way it is. This is truth. God intended our lives as creatures made in his image to be a continual doxology. Sin corrupted that purpose but grace brings us back to what we were made for, our lives to be a doxology, a praise to God. So, I think it's true to say that as we see more of God and what he's done in Christ, we'll be able to say like David, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, thine is the dominion, O Lord, and thou dost exalt thyself as Lord over all. Well, I want to close by reading the rest of this poem that I started earlier. I'll repeat the first two stanzas. Eternal light, eternal light, How pure that soul must be, when placed within thy searching sight, it shrinks not, but with calm delight can live and look on thee. The spirits that surround thy throne may bear that burning bliss, but surely that is theirs alone, who undefiled have never known a fallen world like this. How shall I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on my naked spirit bear the uncreated beam. There is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, a Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. These, these prepare us for the sight of holiness above. The sons of ignorance and night may dwell in the eternal light through the eternal love. God, through Christ, has made himself approachable. Well, that was a meager attempt at it, trying to look at these incredible thoughts concerning God, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I thought we could close by singing 
the song that was taken from these two doxologies in First Timothy, Immortal, Invisible, God, Only Wise.